0: We read in John chapter 12 this morning um, the story of Jesus uh, at a very special meal after the raising of Lazarus that we talked about last week. And at the end of that chapter in John 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, at the end of that chapter there's a, a hostility that grows among the religious leaders towards Jesus. And they determine in their heart at that point in time, that they are going to um, kill him. So, um, before we get into the message today, it's kind of, the the message title is, I've titled The Healthy and Unhealthy Responses to Christ. Before we get into the content of what those healthy and unhealthy responses look like, I want to kind of drive home a point, a foundational point here. In 2,000 years that, um, since the, the death and resurrection of Christ, one thing that's not changed is this idea of polarization around who Jesus is uh, and what work it, it is that he's doing and that he has done. So the world has gone through cycles, particularly in the West, uh, with regard to the outward their outward identity with Christ. Sadly, we live in a day and age when human sin and our enmity towards God um, is misunderstood so greatly. Here's what Jesus said about who we are with regard to Him. He said this in Matthew 12, 30. The Lord said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's a pretty simple truth. What Jesus is saying is you really in our lives, when we talk about healthy and unhealthy responses to Christ, really it boils down to you are either for Christ or you're against him. The The determining factor of that is not how good of a life we lead or how many good things we do for Jesus. The determining factor of that is an, is an issue of faith. It's an issue of faith in the dying Christ, faith in the sacrifice of Christ, faith in the resurrection of Christ and who he is to you. So later in the scriptures, when we read um, in Romans 5, Paul's words here, he says this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word reconciled or reconciliation is used three times there in those verses. The idea here is that Paul says, at one point in time, we were all enemies of God. That's part of... Uh, the one side of the fence of being who you are in in Jesus. You're either an enemy of Christ or the flip side of that is that you are reconciled in Christ. So there's no middle ground. And that's the foundation I want to lay this morning. You could be, I could be a really good person. I mean, I could feed a lot of homeless people. I could maybe never say a curse word in my life. Uh, I could be the most polite gentleman to my spouse and my children. I could raise a really moral family and still be an enemy of God. Because what determines our status before God is whether we reject or accept who Jesus Christ is. Now with that said, we come to this dinner party that Elijah so eloquently read for us. Jesus ducks out of um, Jerusalem and uh, a period of time goes by and we find him here at this dinner party hanging out with this cast of characters. And in the midst of this cast of characters, we see a clear delineation of those who are living a life in a healthy way in response to Christ and those who are living in an unhealthy manner. So, even though in our day and age today we, don't, we so desperately don't want to see this, we want to cling to, you know, we're a fairly good person or we do good things. Um, I think of the words of Chuck Colson when he said, because of our view of goodness and sin and how we've watered that down and we've turned it into something other than the way God sees it, We've begun to justify sin in our life, and we begin to justify unbiblical teaching and accept those things. What Coulson said is, quote, our culture has written sin out of existence. Jesus never wrote sin out of existence. So beginning at the end of the last chapter, and now as we see in John chapter 12, there are healthy responses and unhealthy responses to Christ. I'm going to give you the cast of characters this morning. That's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about each one of these people that's represented either inside or outside this dinner party, and we're going to talk about whether it's a healthy or an unhealthy response to who Jesus Christ is claiming to be. We see uh, we see about six different characters. We see Lazarus, of course, the dude who has had this unique privilege of being dead and now he's alive again. He's hanging out there with Jesus at this dinner party. We see Martha and her sister Mary. But then also as a part of this dinner party, we see Jesus' followers of whom one is mentioned specifically in another text is, uh, is Judas. And then we see that there are these Jewish crowds of people that are following him. And lastly, we see the, the chief priests, you know, the high hoity-toity types of the um, Jewish religious day. So the first one, let's talk about here this morning. Let's talk about, first of all, what does a believer's healthy response to Christ look like? And we see this first in Lazarus. It doesn't seem like a great big uh, theological point when you first read it, but it says here that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus arrayed from the dead. So they gave a dinner party for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Reclining with him at the table. This is... uh, This is a standard practice. You would host somebody or somebody would be a part of the dinner table. And back in the day, they had they didn't have the high tables that we would sit at. You know, all the tables were sort of lower. They would literally recline, like they would lay down. I mean, I know my children probably love if we ate dinner like this every night. They would put out pillows soft uh, uh, rugs, they would lay down, next, and they would just lean one into the other and they would eat this way. And it was it was a really, if you're the type of person like me that you just don't like to be touched, you don't like people in your business while you're eating your dinner, you certainly don't want people conversing over your plate of food because, you know, that just means they're in your food and that's gross, but that's the kind of people they were back then. I mean, like the whole family slept in one room, which is... Just the thought of that drives me crazy too. My wife will tell you, it was like day four, and I'm like, we got to get the baby out of the room. I, I can't sleep with a child in the room. Um, so uh, Spurgeon put it this way. Charles Spurgeon said, when it has been our happy lot to feast with our beloved in his banqueting hall, we would not have given half a sigh for all the kingdoms of the world if so much breath could have brought them the point is this, in Lazarus we see this healthy response. It's making the most of time to commune with him. In our lives, a person who is in a healthy place with Christ is a person who's going to make the most of their opportunities and time to commune with Jesus. Uh, there's a lot of things Lazarus could have been doing, but at this point in time he chose to recline with Jesus. Jesus. He chose to dine with him. He chose to spend time with him. And as Spurgeon says, what a happy lot it is to have that privilege from time to time, to be able to feast with our Lord. Here's Lazarus. By name, we don't know much about him. We feel like we should know more about Lazarus from Scripture just because of the prominent role that he played in being raised from the dead because we know that it says in the Scripture that Jesus loved him. But other than that, we don't know much. We don't really know what Lazarus did for a living. We don't know how he got to the station in life that he's at. We don't know if he's keeping Martha and Mary or if Martha and Mary are married and Lazarus is just a single bachelor guy enjoying life. Maybe his wife died in childbirth. We don't know any of those things. All we know is that Lazarus is a portrayal of somebody who clearly had an intimate love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ christ lazarus isn't given any quotes in scripture his job in scripture was to die and rise again that was his job and what does he do as a result of that he comes and he's quite content to hang out at the feet of the lord and just dine with him so we don't know much about him but we know that back in the day people gave children names for a reason here's what lazarus's name means The name Lazarus in Hebrew means one of poverty or one who is completely destitute. Now, I don't know his financial status in life, but I do know this. Here he is living up to the exact opposite of what his name means. Lazarus is in a kingly position right now. He doesn't know it. But he is, he's actually been invited in and has been given a position of prominence to sit and dine and commune with the creator of the universe, the king of all heaven and earth, the one who is his own savior. He's been given the right to spend intimate time with him. And this is something that gets lost on us as Christians quite easily. Each one of us who has chosen to follow Christ as Lord and Savior has been given this same privilege, have we not? We've been given the right to come and not only um, approach God with some fear and reverence and awe, which is okay, but then God says, no, 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 I want you to come in closer. I want you to sit right here by my right hand. Lay down here next to me. Let's have some some food together. Let's enjoy company together. Lazarus is no longer living up to the name of poverty. Lazarus is now living up to the name of kingly position and a high estate. And it's clear from the Gospels that Jesus enjoyed this kind of fellowship with those people who were closest to him. That's why I don't get when other people of other religions worship a God that they insist and they they crave after a God that is so distant and so cold and so hostile. And yet our Savior, Jesus, just wants nothing more than that intimate relationship where he can draw us in to himself. Jesus said in Luke 19, he tells us this story. You remember Zacchaeus from Sunday school, right? Growing up, wee little Zacchaeus, a little short guy who couldn't see Jesus when he passed by. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. That's his claim to fame, by the way. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Zacchaeus, you're short. That's why you're in the scriptures. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Jesus comes into each one of our lives and he says, Hey, I stay at your house today, is that okay? Is it okay if I come and I... I dine with you. I mean, in keeping with that theme, we also read in Mark chapter 2, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, and then another one. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting on the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at, at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Here we go. He calls another corrupt politician type, another sellout. And he says, hey, you, sinner, the guy at the tax booth that nobody likes, I want to dine with you too. I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to hang out with you. And if you want... Bring that salty crowd that you hang out with. Let them come and hang out with me too. Gosh, Jesus is just so beautiful that way. He doesn't care what your past is. He doesn't care what you're doing right now. Jesus looks at us and he says, I see something redeemable in you. I see something lovely in you. I see something relatable in you that I want to commune with, that I want fellowship with. Lazarus tells us that. His name means destitute. But in Christ, he had everything as he dined with him. You know, we don't deserve to dine with Christ. And yet Jesus says this, we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. He tells the church, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, here's the language again. I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The relationship with Jesus Christ is so associated with intimacy that even at the end of God's word in the book of Revelation, Jesus is still calling people to open their lives up so that he might come in and dine with them and fellowship with them. This is not, the, the world would have you believe that this is some sort of hostile God that wants to rule us with an iron fist and he wants to make our life miserable. And everything I read about Jesus says just the opposite of that. That the Lord wants to free us. That the Lord wants to lavish love upon us. That the Lord wants to know us intimately so that He can fellowship with us. What a beautiful picture of Christ in this dinner party. In a world of just hurried, crazy activity. In a world of doing for God. There's a needed joy to be found in simply reclining with Him. And, and it may look like this. Uh, each one of our lives is different, but for some of us it may, may mean just when your day has been long and you're tired and you're weary, it may mean taking an extra half hour and waiting to turn on a television in the evening and opening up his word. Just to see if God has something that he wants to say to you before the, before the, the media or the world speaks into your evening. It may mean relaxing with Jesus and a cup of coffee in the morning before you get about your day. But I can say with confidence this, based upon the Scriptures, that the Lord is anxiously desiring to fellowship with both you and with me. It's what we're choosing to do with our time that says a lot about us and whether we're in a healthy place with Christ. The second person in this cast of characters is Martha. Martha. And this is what I want to say about Martha. This is what we can learn about a healthy response to Jesus. In Martha, we see someone seeking opportunities to serve him with her or with our whole heart. Someone who's seeking opportunities to serve him with our whole heart. Martha is simply doing what comes natural to her. Serving. Some of you in this room are like that. You're servers, you're doers. You're seeking opportunity to do, do for other people. The name Martha in Hebrew means mistress or keeper of the house. She's living up to her name. She's entertained Jesus before, if you remember. This isn't the first time she's served the Lord. She's served the Lord before in Luke chapter 10 at a different dinner gathering. You're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The difference between Martha serving then and Martha serving now is the Lord's rebuke. So it causes us to ask the question, what was so good about Martha serving now And what was so wrong about Martha serving before that the Lord would rebuke her? Her first time serving Jesus came with that rebuke, and the rebuke tells us about something that must have changed in her heart from the first to the second. Jesus tells us in that first serving episode that Martha was troubled, that she was anxious about many things. We don't get that impression in this second time. The first time we're led to believe, um, or this second time we're led to believe that she was serving out of joy and thankfulness and a personal love for Jesus. The first time she was serving for the purpose of serving. She was serving for the purpose of doing. She was serving perhaps for the purpose of impression. But now she's serving out of overflow. Overflow. Now she's serving out of something. You remember, something has changed as well, not just the rebuke of Jesus, but what has changed in Martha's life since the first time she served and now. We read about it the other week. She's come to understand who Jesus really is. Now Not only has she seen her her Jesus raise Lazarus, her brother, from the dead, but she's had a change of heart of her own. She has come to realize that Jesus is not just a good teacher. Jesus isn't just a miracle worker. She's come to realize that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is her her own personal savior. Jesus is the Christ. Now she serves out of that personal love and admiration and thanksgiving for who he is. And so it should be for us. Look what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. He tells us to work willingly at whatever you do, but here's the qualifier. As though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. There are those people who serve... As martyrs, we've met those people. You know, nobody else is going to do it. I guess it's just going to have to be me again. We've met those people. Even in church, there's those people. We've met people who serve because they have to have it done their way. Well, if I don't do it, then it's going to get screwed up. So I guess I have to be the person that does it. We've met those people as well. Well, high maintenance. I can relate. Sometimes if I don't catch myself, I can be one of those people. But... This serving that we see from Martha here is simply, um, there's my Lord. He, it's an audience of one. I'm here to serve Him and Him alone. There's no anxiousness. There's no hidden agendas. Um, she's doing the right thing by serving Him. If, in Romans 12:11, Paul also says this. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So it doesn't mean that just because you know, you're doing it on an intimate level, that you're doing it because you love the Lord, that it's an overflow of thanksgiving, it doesn't mean that it's supposed to be half-hearted either. It's supposed to do it with, with zealousness. If we find ourselves continually serving out of expectation, without joy, I think that's an unhealthy place. We should check our relationship with Christ. If we find ourselves serving for causes rather than for Christ, we should check that relationship. There are a lot of people out there that are doing a lot of good things, but they're not serving the Lord. I can go feed homeless people I can go love on shut-ins. I can adopt children or take in foster children. And those are all good things, but they aren't necessarily serving the Lord. Now we come to Mary. In Lazarus, we see someone communing with Christ. In Martha, we see somebody serving Christ out of a, a good heart. And in Mary, we see this. Someone sacrificially loving Jesus no matter what. You see where all these things are directed? Communing with Christ. Serving Christ. Giving to Christ. This truly is the climax of the dinner that evening. I mean, this was the showstopper. This is the one that would have caused everybody's jaws to literally hit the floor when this happened. Just like the previous account that we read earlier, here we see Mary practicing her gift and living up to who God has created her to be. She's pensive, which means she's thoughtful. She's emotional. I mean, she's not overly emotional, like like some sort of uh, charismatic running up and down the aisles at church. She's emotional in her connection to who Jesus is. She deeply understands what's going on here. Six days until Passover. The Lord Jesus had been speaking clearly now about His impending death. Six days until Passover. We understood what the, the Messiah would be looking at. This act that Mary is about to engage in would be no different. Weightiness of this visit of the Lord so close to Passover. She gives so much which all points to the deeper giving of her heart. Here we go. Here's what we see. First in Mary, we see that this isn't just giving for giving's sake, but this is giving that's costly. What she does, the showstopper, it's a showstopper mostly because of how costly it is what she does. The perfume made with nard was not something that was native to Israel. It was something that was native to India. It's why it was so expensive. The cost to get it there. This wasn't Amazon. I mean, you didn't have. she didn't have Amazon Prime. She could order it and get it in two days like all of us did our Christmas shopping this year. This was something that had to travel trade routes for weeks, if not months, to arrive. I mean, talk about special order. This stuff was expensive. How expensive. What she just poured upon the Lord was an entire year's worth of wages. A year's worth of wages. Now, we all make different amounts in this room. How much do you make a year? Jesus shows up in the room and you walk in and you lay it all down at his feet. No questions asked. Just because he deserves it. Because he's worthy of it. Even the alabaster flask was expensive. And what did she do with that? So that she could pour the nard out on him, she broke it. She didn't open it. She busted the thing open so that she could just the dramatic. Can you picture the dramatic effect of this? Let's say the alabaster jar was a couple months' worth of wages, and the nard, the perfume, was a year's worth of wages, and she's so anxious to anoint her her Lord with it that she just busts the whole thing open and pours it upon him so that she could humbly worship him. In a very personal statement here, I think it's telling of John's authorship of this gospel, that he was clearly there at this this dinner, that it left such an impression upon him, this, this parenthetical statement right in the middle of this. He says, the whole room smelled like perfume. Now where I go to the gym and I run a few mornings a week, there are some old ladies that come in, in their sweatsuits, And they feel like they have to pour a whole alabaster flask of perfume on themselves and get on the treadmill right next to me. And I tell you, it makes for a long four miles. Because I'm inhaling just old lady perfume the whole time and like, you know, quietly retching as I do it. John says this left that kind of impression. The smell was overwhelming in the room. Everybody knew that what she did was massive in scope. There was no way you were leaving that dinner party and not talking about what Mary did. So we know it was costly. But here's the other thing. It wasn't costly in a showy way. Her giving was humble. This wasn't meant. She didn't do this so that everybody would walk away talking about her. She didn't do this for the sake of show. How do I know that? This was for love. This was for an audience of one. The most menial task in the house in a Jewish household was that of the servant that was responsible to wash the feet of the guests. You could not get any lower. Could you imagine how nasty that was? Yesterday I went into a public restroom at the mall. Enough said. I'm coming into your house. What are you going to do? I'm going to take off my shoes. Let's say I go into that public restroom with sandals on. Are you going to be the one that wants to touch my feet after that whole episode? I hate feet to begin with. If you tell me that you just came from a public restroom or a latrine, and now it's my job to wash your feet, again, I'm in the corner retching at the thought of doing something like that. And yet, here's Mary. Not only does she pour a year's worth of wages on her Jesus, but then she does something that's so humbling. She stoops down, she pours her life savings on his body, and then she washes his feet personally. And according to custom in the day, a woman would never approach a man to do this. Never. And you would certainly never approach a rabbi to do this. And you would never let your hair down in the presence of a man. And yet Mary does all these things. Why? So she can bear her very soul in the process of washing the Lord's feet with everything that she owns. What do we give today that comes anything close to that? Nothing. We talk about, you know, well, I got I I got to serve like the second week this month at church. I guess I got to serve because nobody else is going to do it, you know. And then we break our arm, patting ourselves on the back about how much we're doing for the Lord. I'm just saying, like, I think this illustrates to us that there is no depth of sacrifice to which we can go, which is the point where the Lord would say, yeah, you finally reached it. You've finally given enough. I don't think there is such a place. How do I know? What was Jesus' response to her? Did he shoo her away? Did he say, no, 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 that's too much money. That's your life savings. Don't give it to me. Oh, don't touch my feet, Mary. You're too good for that. The Lord says something quite different, actually. This gift was not a token. This was her whole entire heart laid bare before everybody in that room. And maybe part of it has to do with the fact that just a few months earlier, she sinned before the Lord. Do you know that? Do you remember when she raced out to meet Jesus and she accused Him? In a very judgmental way, she said, you know what? If you had just been here, my brother would not be dead. And we all do that from time to time. And now here she is with a very repentant and thankful heart for who Christ is. Her giving was costly. Her giving was certainly humble. And her giving, as Jesus tells us, was multiplied. It was multiplied. Two of the synoptics, the synoptic gospels, tell us that one of Jesus' responses uh, tells us that one of Jesus' great responses to that love was this. Mark 14 same dinner party, just cast in a different light from a different author. Mark 14. Jesus says this about Mary. Everybody's laying blame on her. And he says, She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, and this is a multiplication, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Mary, this loving, amazing, jaw-dropping, intimate, deep, overwhelming, sacrificial, humble act of giving to the Lord would be proclaimed every time the gospel of Christ is proclaimed. I mean, we see that. Three books of the Bible, three gospel accounts include this sacrifice that Mary would give. This giving would result in a forever gospel proclamation. We don't like to talk about, in church today, you know, we don't like to talk about the things that we do for Jesus as having any kind of, you know, effect. But they do The things that we do for Christ, when out of the right heart, can have a multiplying effect, can have a ministry effect, can have a witnessing effect. What we give, the choices that we make and how we give of our time and our talent, our treasures, our resources, all those things that we pour out before the Lord, they speak to who Jesus is to us. That's why Mary's sacrificial giving act here is included in the Gospels because they speak so clearly more than anybody else, I think, that night. They speak clearly to what Christ rejoices in when he receives the gifts that he's given us poured back out upon him. Now, those are three pretty healthy, beautiful responses to Jesus. But we must ask the question, on the flip side of the coin, what does the world's unhealthy response to Jesus look like? And we see this in the last three cast of characters. First, we have this chucklehead named Judas. We know a lot about him. We know he's the one who would betray the Lord. But what we see in Judas is this truth we understand that an unhealthy response to Jesus looks like someone who's following him with sinful, self-centered motives. Coming to Christ and saying you follow him while clinging to your own motives and agendas is incomprehensible. Unacceptable to the Lord, actually. Judas's concern is obviously based upon what he what we know about him. We know that he would betray Jesus. We know that he was a thief. And he tries to take the the high road. The road of of, of, um, elitism. The idea that don't we all in the when he sees Mary doing this, and if anybody would know how much this stuff was worth, it would be Judas. And he's looking at this whole thing go down and the chatter amongst the people in the room uh, is you know, Judas says oh, gosh if, if she had just taken this and given it to the poor then that would have been a better thing and I, Jesus just shuts him down right away you No, know, what she's done she's done to anoint me for my burial and it's a good thing because here's the deal Jesus could read Judas's heart as clear as He could read your heart, my heart, when we give and when we say things. Jesus knew full well what Judas's heart is. It bad to give to the poor? No, I think the Lord, you know, the Lord encourages us to do that. But why are we giving to the poor? Judas didn't want to give to the poor. Jesus wanted the money in the money bag to say that He was going to give to the poor, so that Judas could help himself to the money bag. It happened all the time. Scripture tells us that. Giving to the poor was simply a ruse for Judas to better himself. Gospel ministry was simply a ruse for Judas to better himself. And it still happens in ministry today. People use the perception of what's good ministry to better themselves. And they carry names like this, guys named Baker or Swagger or Benny Han or Joel Osteen. These people who they proclaim a ministry, they own own a ministry for the purpose of helping themselves to the bag of money. They tell, invite people to come up front and they whack them on the side of the head with their jacket or a stick and they proclaim that they've been healed. And then they ask them to put a, a check in their account. Even that's just today contemporary, but it's nothing new in the church. In years back, it's been the Catholic popes selling forgiveness for cash. The Catholic church got themselves into a big mess and it led to the Reformation. The idea that, well, we can sell indulgences. You know, if you want to do something that's sinful, if you give enough cash to the church, we'll overlook it. Are you kidding me? Just like Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew twenty-three. He said this, So you also outward appear, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, lawlessness. I think it's that same text that he calls them a brood of vipers. Judas was looking to fulfill himself. The second unhealthy response here is the Jewish crowds, the crowds of Jews that were following them everywhere. These are people that are just sort of existing in shallow curiosity. I call them people on the sidelines. It's typical, really, for today. Those that surround Jesus for what he can do for them, those who are looking for Jesus to meet their needs like some sort of heavenly Santa Claus, these are the people that look at Jesus for the parlor tricks that he could perform, and they live in a half sincerity. And Jesus made it clear that there is no half with him. We talked about that at the beginning of the message. Um, Pastor Kyle Eidelman wrote a book called um, Not a Fan. And he said this, this is his basic premise. Jesus is seeking followers, not fans. Sadly, in America today, Jesus has a lot of fans and not many followers. A lot of people aren't going to know him as Lord because they're quite happy on the sidelines. I'm saying a healthy response to Christ never looks like a sideline Christian. And lastly, we see the chief priests. If Judas was in it for self, if the crowds of people were existing simply out of curiosity on the sidelines the chief priests are those who are seeking to destroy him and anyone who enables his message and his fame the more people follow jesus the angrier those people in power become rarely do you see rarely do you see power hungry leaders of like totalitarian or dictatorial countries Embrace the Christian church. Why? Because Christ preaches a message of repentance and freedom, and they don't operate that way. When somebody becomes free in Christ, somebody else loses control and power over your life. The church is either squashed by those people or forced into submission. From Nazi Germany to China, to ISIS. People who want absolute power do not want a people who are trusting in Christ. Same thing is true for the religious leaders, the chief priests of the day. Their word was power. Their word and their position was authority. Anything outside of that was power. an endangerment to them and their power and their position and their authority. And then you have the Sadducees. They were just simply threatened because Jesus took somebody who was dead and raised them to life again, and that blew their whole theology out of the water. They didn't believe in a resurrection. That's what they taught. All of a sudden, they were proved invalid just like that. So here's the other interesting thing about these guys. Sin begets sin. If you allow one sin, it's going to grow into another and into another, and that's a whole separate case study on the life of David. But... In this particular instance, it's telling that at the end of chapter 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the chief priest himself, Caiaphas, he says this in 1150, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die. He's talking about Jesus, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He's saying, the chief priest is saying, hey, Everybody, let's just gather around here just so we're all clear as religious leaders. We have to kill this guy because this Jesus is an endangerment to the nation of Israel. But now we've already moved from killing one man to two. You see, because Lazarus was raised from the dead. Lazarus was living proof that Jesus was who he says he was. So now what do you do? Well, we'll kill Jesus and we'll kill Lazarus. Faithful followers and keepers of God's word are no less a target than the Lord Jesus himself. I'm not saying that to to bolster our feelings as believers today. I'm not trying to scare you, and I'm not trying to make you feel like you're more than what you really are. I'm just simply stating a scriptural fact, and you can do the the homework on your own this week. But there are several instances where the Lord clearly states that the world will hate you because it hates me first. And he he tells in the uh, um. Let's go on the fly here and read Matthew chapter five. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is hard to do with one hand, by the way. In the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the um, at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew five. Verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he goes on to say, be salt, be light. There, there's just this expectation on the part of Jesus that if you stand with Him, people will despise you, revile you, and hate you. Um, I'm not asking you to go out and make enemies. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think it's our job as Christians to make enemies. But I do believe this, that if we are living for Christ, if we are in a healthy relationship with Christ, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing as Christians, we're going to create a response in people they're either going to be drawn to Christ or they're going to revile Christ even more. And they're going to revile you and I in the process. We don't do it with malice. We don't do it in a, a, an intent to offend people at all. But when you leave this place and you go talk about Jesus with somebody, or you go and you do something in the name of Christ uh, to serve another person, or you prioritize your life and that of your family in such a way that it's evidence of who Christ is in your life, People are going to either be drawn to Jesus or they're going to hate him even more. The Apostle Paul said, To some, we're the fragrance of life, right? And to others, those who are perishing, we're the fragrance of what? Death. Yeah. We like being the smell of life, don't we? Being the smell of death, I mean, that puts us in an awkward place. It's okay. So the the way we land this plane this morning is just simply to ask this question. Are you in a healthy place or an unhealthy place? Based upon what we laid out today. If you were at that dinner party, who would you be identifying with? Is your walk with Christ about you? Or is it about what you can do to openly love the Lord? Sacrificially, the way Mary did. To give to Him. To commune with him as Lazarus did. Are you making time in your life? Are you prioritizing that relationship in the things that you do? The simple fact that you're here this morning on this beautiful Sunday morning when you could be a lot of different places. You could be out riding bike. You could be doing anything, spending time with your family. You're here worshiping the Lord in this communal fellowship. That's good. But what about when we leave this place? What does your communing time with Jesus look like? And what are you doing to serve him? I put in the worship guide, but where's your place? What are you doing to actively contribute to the cause of Christ and to his kingdom work? And it doesn't have to just be in this building. But if it's not in this building, it better be somewhere. I mean, I would pray that your next door neighbor knows that you're a Christian. Because you serve them in some capacity. I would pray that your employer would know what you stand for and what you believe in because you live out Christ in your life. I would pray that you're, if you're not involved in a ministry necessarily during these three or four hours on Sunday morning, which you don't have to be, although it's really super helpful, that you have a ministry of your own doing something. That you're a Martha somewhere. Where do you stand this morning? And it all starts with, who is Jesus to you? Uh, If you're serving Christ, or you think you're serving Christ, but you don't have a relationship with him, you're not really serving Christ. Jesus wants your heart before he wants anything else from you. Today, let's make that today, you give him your heart. Giving Christ your heart is pretty simple. So when you come to the cross and you say, I... I'm a sinner, and I believe I cannot live a perfect life. That's pretty obvious, God. I look at my life, I'm a train wreck. There's stuff that I do wrong each and every day. But I believe that you died on the cross to take your perfection, your righteousness, and place it upon me because you love me that much. I trust in that. I believe that Jesus died in my place. That when this life is over, I won't be punished for my sin because Jesus was already punished for my sin. And then you just live your life loving him in thankfulness and joy. If that's where you want to be today, I'm going to pray as I close us in prayer and I'm going to ask that God might touch your heart, that you would surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And if you do, I need to hear about it. I want to hear about it. I'm not going to make you walk down an aisle, stand up here and wave in front of everybody or talk. But I need to hear about it so that we can... Talk about what's next. What is this relationship? What does this journey look like? Okay. So I want you to, on your tear-off sheet, there's a place there that says, I, I trusted in Christ today. You can mark that box and just put in the offering plate, and I'll find you. Guarantee, I'll find you. But if you want to come and talk to me after the service, that would be even better. Let's pray.